Hi, I'm Bumia Kinesotu, and I am the creator and producer of What in the World show here on WERA LP Arlington, Virginia. Before we begin, I was so moved by the story uh, that you will hear uh, on this next episode that I decided to dedicate it to a young man named Nuri Muhammad. Nuri Muhammad is 18 years old and is a refugee, one of the hundreds and thousands of refugees currently living in uh, Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh. And Nuri's story um, is is one of many um, that's not told. Um, but Francisco, our awesome expert, shared his story and 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 just uh, the sadness um, that so many are facing in in that area. So, Nuri Muhammad, if you are listening to this show, um, hang in there, keep your head high, and and stay strong. You've tuned into What in the World here on WERA LP, Arlington, Virginia. I am your host, Bumi Akinesotu. And here on the show, we try and make sense of what in the world is going on in a way that is understandable and relevant for ordinary people living outside of Washington, D.C. and who don't have all the fancy degrees and issues related to foreign policy. There's been a lot happening in the global news. And one issue that I've been trying to wrap my brain around is the Rohingya crisis. For those of you who may recall, last summer, there was a lot of coverage on ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, which is located in Southeast Asia, and massive amounts of Rohingya refugees 700,000 to be exact, uh, have migrated from Myanmar to uh, neighboring country, Bangladesh. So I invited my good friend Francisco Bencosme to help us understand what in the world is going on over there and what it means for us here in the States. Uh, Francisco Bencosme is here to walk us through what's going on in Myanmar, give us some historical context and help us understand what in the world is going on over there in Southeast Asia. But before that, uh, just a little bit about Francisco. He is the Asia Pacific Advocacy Manager at this little known organization called Amnesty International. Uh, actually, they're not little known. I'm sure every, everybody has, has heard of the great work coming from Amnesty International. Uh, previously, he was on the Hill and worked on the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So he knows all about uh, Congress and the Hill and just a little bit. Just a little bit, maybe, you know, no, to the no, extent no. anybody knows anything about the Hill. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think you know a whole lot, Francisco. That's another show, though. That's another show. Um, but there he assisted Democratic senators on issues related to uh, East Asia and the Pacific, South Asia, the State Department, USAID, all topics that we've, we've talked about in some way um, on this show. So he's going to help us use his experience from the Hill and his now current role um, at Amnesty International to really put some meat around this around this topic and help us understand. Um, he also served as the president of the Congressional Hispanic Staff Association um, and a board member of the Foreign Affairs Congressional Staff Association. And he's got a master's degree from Georgetown and a graduate certificate from the U.S. Air Force University. And uh, he's a Wake Forest grad. Go Deeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to well. judge. Oh, I don't know. Let's start over. No, I'm kidding. Are you a Duke <laughs> fan? <laughs> I might be. Oh, no. I might be. I might be. 
but we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> right. We're not going to start Sports another crisis. Is a different show. It's yeah. another show. <laughs> it's another show. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> okay, I'm glad because I need you for like the next hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for politics, right here, ladies and gentlemen. There you go. Um, so, Francisco, you have a great background, um, and what I ask every person who comes to the show is to tell us how they got to this point in in their career and just personally, what interests you about this region of the world? Was there something in your personal background story growing up, family, um, military, like what what got you here? Right. Well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm a huge fan. um, And, um, you know, I really think it's such an important mission. And the fact that you sort of uh, digest foreign policy to, uh, you know, the the American public. um, (laughs) I try to. (laughs) And, you know, inclusive voices to such an important topic. So um, a little bit about me. Um, I started getting interested in foreign policy uh, when I went to high school. I was a huge debate nerd. Ah. Um, And so I would spend when most people would spend spend their weekends at parties. I would spend it at debate tournaments <laughs> talking about African, you know, public health assistance and <laughs> Middle Eastern democracy as assistance. As a 15-year-old Francisco. As a 15-year-old Francisco. <laughs> um, then I went to college and I was like, you know what? College parties, not so much. Let's do more debate in college. Your parents um, must have been very proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, well, like, they were like, you know, it's really expensive, but we'll support it because it's educational. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, that, so I did debate for like 10 years, um, eight years of high school and college, and then also two years of coaching. But then, you know, I got an internship at a national security think tank, Mm. um, mainly through my Wake Forest debate contacts. Mm. Um, and then afterwards, you know, landed on the Senate side, uh, sort of at, uh, at at sort of the, the, the staff assistant answering phone calls, responding to mail. Which is the rite um, of passage here exactly. in Washington, D.C. If you work on the Hill, absolutely. at some point you were answering somebody's phone call. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, but it was such an amazing place to work in, in that you just learned so much so fast. Um, and I remember my first month, we were debating authorization of use of military force in Syria. And I was like, wow, this is... <laughs> Some heavy topics. This is going to be such a fun place to work. You know, fast forward five years, I just sort of sped through the ranks a bit. And halfway through that, maybe a little earlier, um, somebody was like, would you like to work on the East Asia, South Asia portfolio mm. here on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? Uh, I was under um, a really, you know, at the time my boss, but also a great mentor of mine. Not only was it the position open, but I, I had already started working on things like State Department oversight issues and budget and appropriation issues, we, which he already also worked on. And you just sort of realized that the role of China was clearly going to play a huge role in, in foreign policy, that, um, you know, all the issues that were going on in Southeast Asia were extremely important. And to be able to work on that in such a uh, unique institution like the Senate, mm-hmm. um, particularly the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, was such a great opportunity. So yeah. there's no way I could say no. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I was getting my master's degree at Georgetown, um, took a bunch of classes on Asian security and, and development and human rights issues. Um, And then, you know, afterwards, a great opportunity like Amnesty International uh, showed up um, and they were like, would you like to take your talents on the Hill and and join the uh, NGO advocacy space? And um, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass down. And did you ever think that from like the 15 year old Ben Scome? No. Like debating people that you'd end up here? I mean, none of my parents went to college. And so for me... You know, it was either a lawyer or a doctor. Um, and so I joined debate because I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Were your parents Nigerian by any chance? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, 
Um, and so I thought I was going to be a lawyer because I was like, there's no way I want to be a doctor. I, I hate blood. Um, and so I was, it was just lawyer the entire way. And then I, I started doing policy debate and I was like, I actually really love research. I love learning about politics mm. and the intersection of politics and policy. Um, and then I was just really fortunate that that network um, got me into college. Um, and then I got to continue doing it. And then afterwards helped me um, into the space mm-hmm. here in DC. But it was tough. I mean, there were a lot of really rough patches along the way. Um, but you know, I, I make sure that um, you know, if if eighty percent of my time is focused on work and my life, you know, twenty percent is paying that forward. So, yeah, for know. sure. Uh, I want. I'm interested. I'm always interested when um, people tell me about their stories about like what your parents think about what you do. Yeah. Can you? Do they know? Like the. <laughs> it, it just there's different factions within my family that think I do different thing for a long time. <laughs> My family thought I was at the White House because they had just assumed that was the only job in politics, um, you know, and, and bless them. I love them. <laughs> um, you know, this whole idea of foreign policy, they just assume I'm in a diplomat. Mm. And I'm like, no, I don't work for the State Department. In some cases, I'm, I'm, you know, contradicting the State Department or going against them. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like now when they see photos or just sort of they know I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they know I'm for human rights and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to stop discrimination around the world because I, I talk about it a lot. Yeah. Um, but like what I probably do on a day-to-day basis, um, probably not. No clue. Not no clue. Um, but, but you know, that's why I think podcasts like these are so important because yeah. we get to sort of boil it down for, right. for, for you know, normal people. So, so to the uh, Ben Scome family, <laughs> if you're listening to, to the show, you have an amazing son here, uncle, brother, uh, who's going to tell you exactly what he does and, and, and the difference that he's making, frankly, in the world, which is, which is commendable and desperately, desperately needed. Um, and we'll talk about some of that uh, some more. So let's, let's get into um, this, this crisis here, the Rohingya and what's happening in, in Myanmar. And as I mentioned for um, the listeners in the beginning that, you know, this is something that, that I think really broke in the news last year, last Absolutely. summer is mm-hmm. when we first saw like the crazy pictures and just the, the sadness um, all over. Um, as I was preparing for, for this show, I learned that, you know, <laughs> uh, the usual suspects of um, of mass ethnic violence or instability, you know, anywhere, usually those suspects are colonization <laughs> of some sort. Um, there's some sort of discrimination of a group of people or multiple groups of, of people. And then there's this like pursuit of a natural resource of some sort um, that is beneficial either to the colonizing um, entity, to a family, to an individual, and it and the three together just sort of create this like cesspool of of nastiness. There are other other you know culprits and other uh, factors, but particularly when I was looking at this case, I, I, I checked my little box. I was like, yep, colonialism <laughs> check, <laughs> right. discrimination check. Uh, natural resources. Check. <laughs> uh, those are Bumi's ingredients uh, for a recipe of mass uh, violence uh, and violations of human rights. But Francisco, please, you know, um, let's take a step back away um, from from this issue and let's just look at the groups involved in the situation. And just look at the history mm-hmm. um, and what led this country to to where it's at. Because it's actually, I mean, a few years ago, I was reading articles that it was doing fine and they're trying to become democracy. We had the election and right. things were on the up and up, and now all of a sudden. And we're in this um, terrible place. So this word that has been used, uh, you know, the, the Rohingya, um, who are they? And tell us what their history is and, and why they're a stateless people. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the Rohingya are an ethnic group. Um, the majority of them are actually Muslims um, who have lived for centuries, contrary to what the Myanmar government likes to tell people, uh, in, the, in, in Myanmar. Um, currently, there are about 1.1 million Rohingya in Southeast Asia. Um, and they speak um, a, you know, a dialect that is distinct to others spoken throughout Myanmar. Um, and they're not officially considered one of the country's 135 ethnic groups. Um, and since 1982, have been denied uh, citizenship, um, which has basically rendered them stateless. Um, and so one of the things that Amnesty found in a couple of recent reports this year is that there has been this long disenfranchisement of this population, basically a system of, like you said, old colonial laws that uh, basically render them stateless, but also um, lead to you know massive violations of human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about freedom of movement mm-hmm. being impaired, freedom to... Um, you know, practice and free expression. Uh, and we can talk a little bit further about that later. Um, and there's obviously been reports of, uh, you know, freedom of religion also being violated in many of these camps. Right. So. And and there's an interesting note I, I found about this group. So even the term in and of itself is controversial, right? Because they consider themselves Rohingya people. Right. But the Myanmar government, um, in order for them to become full citizens, it sounds like they are wanting them to um, adopt a a Bengali name or label that they're just like. The Myanmar government wants, because it's it's a society that is sort of believes in and of itself that these people are Bangladeshi and, and Bengali wants them call themselves Bengali. And so they have them, you know, one of the requirements and a couple uh, years ago, they had them sign these, like you, you're sort of referencing these um, verification cards where they would have to agree to be Bengalis, basically essentially reapplying to kind of a immigration status. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the Rohingya's reaction was, why would we do that? I mean, right. we, are, we are Rohingya. We are Rohingya. We are part of this country. Right. We've lived in Myanmar, so have our family for, uh, you know, decades and longer. And so, you know, and so that, that really, that sort of long history really is, is also problematic as you think about um, solutions because it means that tr- there's not a lot of trust on both sides. And there's also issues with respect to, you know, what are the preconditions for getting data or, or just bringing these people back. And so um, a lot of these issues come up. So. Yeah. And and so what we didn't talk about is geographically these the, this community is located in the Rakhine yeah, state, Northern, yeah. Rakhine, and it's located um, not far from Bangladesh, which makes sense that that's where everybody was going because it's right. the closest um, country or safe space for them to be. And I also found it interesting that so Myanmar is, is predominantly a Buddhist country. Right. And my very Western ignorance, I thought Buddhists were like, you know, nonviolent <laughs> No judgment here, but I, I just, you know, I think yoga, I think, you know, Zen and peace. Right. And I, 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 I was shocked to see descriptions of, quote unquote, Buddhist nationalists. 
Absolutely. And and I sort of got, um, you know, reminders of like white nationalists. And, and, and so the two just didn't seem uh, to fit. Like they right. seemed like what Buddhist. Normally think. Yeah. What you normally think is like just outright racists or bigots or whatever. Buddhist is not the term that, <laughs> that right. comes to, to mind here. So, I mean, from your experience being there, I mean, is are these uh, groups who are Buddhists who are against um, the Rohingya, are they um, extremists or is the entire country sort of feeling the same about this, about the Rohingya group themselves? So, yeah, two questions to unpack there. The, yeah. the first one is there have certainly been reports and the State Department has condemned some of these groups as well um, of extremist Buddhists. Um, and they are, it's, they've, they've gone by the name Mabatha. Mm. Um, and they are, if, you know, a public official says the word Rohingya, you can expect um, them to be mobilizing people outside with torches and sort of in mass protest for using, even using the word. They're the ones who um, in the past have been spreading propaganda with respect to uh, descriptions or stereotypes mm-hmm. of what the Rohingya population have been doing. And so so they have, they definitely exist. Okay. Um, and just like in any society, um, yeah. they, you know, you have your fringe groups and your extremist groups. But at the same time, getting to your second question, there's a reason why the Rohingya are considered one of the most persecuted minorities in the entire world. Mm. Um, and that's because if you look at public polling within Myanmar, and, and it, there's not a lot of it, and it's usually really difficult, but there's there's been delegations there, senators have visited, um, and they've come back and after speaking to, you know, your, your average, um, you know, person from Myanmar, they'll say, oh, no, we don't we don't like those Bengalis. Um, and, and so they refer so, to them as Bengalis, exactly. not even as Rohingya. Rohingya. That's yeah. just how, like, and against it they're, they're, they are. Absolutely. And so the level of uh, hate and um, discrimination that you sort of hear on the streets of Yangon um, and which Naypyidaw. Is the, which is the capital. Yeah, well, Yangon's the biggest city, and, and Naypyidaw, Naypyidaw um, okay. is, it, it used to be the capital of okay. Yangon, um, and now Naypyidaw is um, is sort of this military-created uh, capital mm-hmm. back when it was uh, still under rule by the military. And you just, there's just, you know, you just talk to an average person, and there's just so much discrimination against the Rangers. Right. So, and is it because they're Muslim? Do you think, or is it just a confluence of history and historic uh, discrimination for maybe access to resources or whatever it is? Is is, or do you think is it is it religion? Yeah, I mean, we at, at, at Amnesty we try to not ascribe motives yeah, as yeah, much yeah. Um, yeah. because we sort of have a you know we, we try to be kind of a set a higher uh, a high bar for for um, you know those types of things. But but what we have found is just you know that there's these just sort of systematic forms of discriminatory laws that are based around issues of sometimes religion mm. uh, are based off of sometimes things about, you know, where you are, but it just so happens that, you know, they're all based in, you know, Rakhine or sort of these villages. Right. Um, and it's, it happens at the federal, local, um, and sort of state level as well. Right. And, it, you know, it's even though the U.S. media and folks here in D.C. have been paying attention to it since last year, it's it's been a problem that's been going on for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and it definitely predates the recent election, which brought a civilian government into power. But what really changed everything, and um, even though Amnesty has been documenting human rights violations for a long time, is just, you know, the movement of 
almost 700,000 people across right. the border into Bangladesh. Right, so. right. And and so you, you did mention some of the, the groups um, on the on the military side or the Buddhist, the Buddhist side. But um, I think naturally it's, you know, it makes sense that there would be an opposition group uh, from the Rohingya that are trying to assert themselves and to um, get access to the basic human needs and rights that everybody else in their country right. um, um, is is receiving and, 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 then they're, and they're not. So last summer's events spiraled out of control. Well, sources of the media is portraying it that, you know, a, a group known as the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, ARSA, attacked some military posts. And then the military disproportionately executed uh, cleansing operations against this, against the Rohingya, forcing the 700,000 people to to leave. Um, and when I say disproportionate, I mean, I, I don't mean like lowercase d, I mean like capital D, like Absolutely. we're talking entire villages being burned down women and children being raped and the horror is documented. But the challenge was that the, the issue was that just the disproportionate. It's like I throw a stone at your house and you come with like right. <laughs> with like a, a I don't even know. I don't know weapons very well, but like a bulldozer and yeah. you just like bulldoze my entire house. And I threw like a stone through your, right. <laughs> through right. your window. So who is ARSA? And talk to us about what what they want. Like, as you mentioned, ARSA is a Rohingya militant group. Also, as you mentioned, they're pretty much a result of, you know, decades of disenfranchisement of the Rohingya population. You know, Amnesty recently released a report that said that ARSA committed its own human rights abuses, particularly within the Hindu population Mm -hmm. in northern Rakhine. And not much is known about what actually motivated ARSA besides um, clearly uh, sort of the systematic, you know, uh, decades of disenfranchisement of their people. And so, you know, we're talking about not a group that is very, um, you know, sophisticated right. and, you know, attacked several military outposts. Post, and, you know, um, to Amnesty's credit, you know, we, we, we condemn them, particularly for the human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, the Myanmar's military's response was, um, you know, ethnic cleansing yeah. and uh, human rights violations that constituted crimes against humanity. Right. So. Some strong they words. Re, they there. re-raised pretty high. So yeah, the uh, state councilor Suchi um, is the leader of Myanmar, and uh, some of you may have remembered that she received a Nobel Peace Prize uh, back in the '90s, and she's kind of I liken her to like their Nelson Mandela. Right. In a way, who came, uh, she came in, she was elected in 2015. Right. She was she was under arrest for decades um, and then released and then put back under arrest again. Right. And her children are all born abroad. But she came back and she won the first democratically led election that the country's ever had. Right. Um, in 2015. So she's so she's now the leader of this country. And there was all of this hope around her presence um, and her election and, and helping the country get together. Tell her what, tell us what sort of her role has been and what she's been doing about what this leader has been doing about the situation in her country. Absolutely. Um, so 
To put a little bit of context, um, Amnesty International declared her a prisoner of conscience because she was under house arrest um, under the military rule. She was, as you had mentioned, lauded as a human rights icon, uh, not just in the country, but around the world for many um, who sort of live under uh, the military junta regime. You know, similar to how we do for many political prisoners now today, uh, would send petitions and letters and advocacy and campaigns uh, to free Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, And so when we finally saw her release and then subsequently, uh, several years later, finally saw the national, uh, the NLD come into power. Which is uh, her her political party. Nationally for Democracy, yeah, to come into into power um, after a historic election. Although it's important to keep in mind that uh, the Rohingya were still disenfranchised because they weren't an ethnic uh, minority, were not able to vote in that election. Mm. She came into power. And then soon after, the events of August 25th happened. And the reason she's not president is because the military created a constitution where the president couldn't be, couldn't be somebody who was foreign-born. Right. And she had children, uh, you know, children yeah. right? Um, and so it was particularly also relatives that were foreign-born. And so she had children who were British. Um, Which is kind of so, like a stick to her, right? It's kind of like you westernized very, girl coming to our country thinking you can come back and lead. And even though her father was very much lauded, exactly. um, uh, an important figure in the country and actually used to be part of, um, you know, an important leader in the Myanmar military. Mm-hmm. Um but then what the other provision in the Constitution was basically no one has control over the Myanmar military. And so mm. it's in some ways it's a power sharing agreement um, between Aung San Suu Kyi, the civilian government, um, and you know, the Ministry of Defense and the Myanmar military. And so Amnesty International, are, what we've sort of been calling for is to really, given that the atrocities were committed by the Myanmar military, given that, um, you know, the civilian government doesn't have oversight over them. Mm. Um, been really calling on the Myanmar military to basically, you know, one stop these human rights abuses right. in Rakhine State, right. um, and then for the international community to hold them responsible and accountable for their actions. Right. Um, about a month ago, at the United Nations, uh, Amnesty International with a bunch of other human rights groups called for uh, the UN Security Council to refer, um, you know, senior military officials or the perpetrators of these atrocities cities to be sent to the International Criminal Court. Which is a big deal. Absolutely. That's Um, like nobody wants to go to the ICC, the International Criminal Court. That's like the embarrassment Um, of embarrassments. I want to make sure we we zoom in on a, a, a the, inst- the role of the international community here, right. and you mentioned the United Nations and, of course, the United States, right. uh, but then there's um, ASEAN, uh, which stands for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. First of all, who are they? Yeah. And then do you think that they have a role or what role should they be playing here? Because, like you said, um, no one has control over the military. They don't own up to anybody. No one's holding them accountable. So is this something that Asian should be doing? or what's your your take? We absolutely think that ASEAN should be calling them um, calling the you know perpetrators of these human rights uh, abuses into account, um, they should be working with the international community to stress a safe, dignified, and voluntary repatriation of the Rohingya in Bangladesh back to uh, Myanmar. Um, one that you know includes um, you know removing citizenship requirements, basically remove that system of uh, discrimination that's built in place in mm-hmm. Myanmar, and, and bringing these folks to account and to justice. Problem with ASEAN is that is a 
consensus-based body. Mm. And so uh, <laughs> Myanmar has a vote, um, and nothing can be done without um, the consensus of all of its members. Are you serious? And so unlike, you know, Unlike the UN, where right, you can have, like, well, the, the UN Security, Security Council, Council, right, or basically has veto power over any decision in ASEAN, which, and, and not only is consensus really important, but also centrality and unity. So mm. anything um, has very strong culture where anything that is seen um, that is divisive or splitting, splitting um, the, group, the apart. group apart is is really um, not sort of not not the ASEAN way as they would say. Ah. Um, yeah. So through the international community, if I'm understanding sort of all of the tools in, in Amnesty International's tool belt, you have um, ASEAN, who has this right. weird situation where everyone has to agree before right. they, which is kind of cool if you think about it, but that in situations like this, <laughs> it's like, damn it, guys. Uh, you have the UN, um, which we talked about a little bit, and then we have the United States um, right. here uh, in Congress, which you'll, which you'll talk about some of the yeah. tools in our tool belt that we're using to put some pressure on, on, on the military. Um, before we go to that, I do want to revisit the, the terms that you used around ethnic cleansing. Correct. Because those are some serious, serious phrases. And what are the implications of calling this state-sanctioned ethnic cleansing? Like, Actually, um, under international human rights law, ethnic cleansing doesn't have legal weight. Um, So, you know, there's no responsibility to act under ethnic cleansing. Um, It's very much a, a term that brings... To bear what's going on, which is you know a systematic and widespread killing um, and sort of human rights violations of an ethnic group, um, but it's you know it's not defined and it doesn't actually require any countries, um, unlike you know some of the other terms uh, you know um, within their international law that um, may require states to, to like genocide, like genocide, yeah. Um, and so, which has um, been used in this case, by the way, but not but not as extensively as right. ethnic cleansing. So the United States has not called it genocide. They have not called it crimes against humanity, actually, either. Um, there's actually a determination underway within the State Department, mm. um, which is considering to call it a crimes against humanity. Um, Secretary Tillerson, at the end of last year, called it. Um, it said made the ethnic cleansing determination. Said that what constituted and happened in Northern Rakhine State um, is ethnic cleansing. So there's like grades. I feel bad saying it, but there's like yeah. s- grades to this thing, levels to this, as we say. Right. All bad. All bad. All failing grades. Horrible. <laughs> Negative F, if that's yeah. possible. So you, right. you go from ethnic cleansing to essentially waiting for someone to call it genocide. Yeah. I mean, Amnesty International has found multiple cases of crimes against humanity, particularly a system of apartheid um, that's been taking place. What we were discussing mm-hmm. early, uh, uh, earlier about you know sort of this um, you know lack of freedom of movement, um, disenfranchisement for a long period of the Rohingya population, all creating an apartheid-like system. Yeah, so. and you had a chance to travel. There, Francisco uh, was out there uh, doing uh, God's work is what I call it, which is, you know, going out there and trying to figure out what's happening. And so, Francisco, what happened? What did you see out there? What what was what did you hear and see from folks living 
in Myanmar. Right. And in, or did you go to Bangladesh? I went to Bangladesh, actually. Bangladesh, yeah. so okay. It's, it's, you know, we've been talking a lot about what happened in northern Rakhine, but it's also important to, to keep in mind what's happening now in Bangladesh. Yeah. I mean, this is a country that basically opened up its borders to a million people. Um, you know, if you think, if you go back to, you know, before and, and you know, end of last year. And so I went to Cox's Bazaar, which is where uh, all the Rohingya um, have traveled, um, particularly to Kutupalong and Balukali refugee camp, which is also known as the world's largest refugee camp. Um, It's home to half a million people. And as we just discussed, these people have fled persecution, ethnic cleansing, other forms of violence in the hands of the Myanmar military. Um, And actually, if, 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 you know, one of the people that I met um, was, uh, you know, a young man named Nuri Muhammad, who asked that I share his story. Please do. um, Please do. In D.C., um, and, and just in, in most of my conversations. And basically, uh, Nuri Muhammad, age 18, you know, had a family of 13, including his two parents um, and 10 siblings. He had aspirations of uh, learning about business, one day opening up a store that could support his family. And then August 25th happened. And, you know, his life was basically never the same. And he was returning from his house, uh, visiting uh, a couple of his friends, when he saw the Myanmar military from afar was indiscriminately killing people in his village. And one of the things he told me he saw was the Myanmar military killing his parents. Um, And one of the last things his last memory of his mom was seeing her tell him to run away and flee. Mm. And so he ran in the direction that a couple people were going, being to Cox's Bazaar. On the way there, he hid in a lake and sort of underneath the water to trying to avoid detection, basically only his mouth sticking out of the water so that um, he, could, he breathe. could breathe and just trying to stay still as much as possible. Little did he know that actually one of the bullets had scraped his leg and he had, you know, he was very eager to show it to me afterwards. Um, And, and, you know, um, he walked with that leg for three days, eventually making it to Cox's Bazaar. To to Bangladesh. Yeah. Luckily, while when he arrived to Cox's Bazaar, he was he was reunited with two of his sisters. All eight of his other siblings did not make it. And um, he... You know, when I asked him uh, about, you know, does he want to return to Myanmar? What would it take for him to return to Myanmar? He said, you know, why would I return to Myanmar? There's there's nothing left there for me. Um, all he could think about was justice for his family and for the atrocities that were committed to um, his family in particular. Unfortunately, you know, this is just one of many mm-hmm. countless heartbreaking stories that you hear mm-hmm. in the camps. Amnesty International has tried to document and um, bring these voices to our reports and to our advocacy as much as possible, particularly for, you know, documentation of future accountability or prosecutions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's right now the, the main priority in the camps is the monsoon season. Mm. So if, you know, it's something we haven't had a chance to talk about, yeah. but Southeast Asia gets pretty bad monsoon season. And so, you know, it just started in June and most of the Rohingya villages or shelters in Cox's Bazaar are built out of makeshift 
bamboo sticks, um, which you know are cleared, um, you know, uh, forests. So normally during monsoon season, the forest would absorb a lot of the the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that you've cleared it all, that water is mass. You know, there's flooding. potentially a risk of flooding, um, landslides, mudslides, and so you have a situation where you know these people have. Uh, who live in makeshift shelters of earth, bamboo, and plastic, and mostly on hillsides in Cox's Bazaar, are potentially facing another catastrophe. Right. The UN agencies and the international community has talked about, you know, with flooding, doesn't it's not just the water. It also is about, you know, potential waterborne infectious diseases, you know, um, some of them fatal, uh, like dorythia or diarrhea. And so you have a situation where these people fled persecution, ethnic cleansing back in their home, only to show up to Cox's Bazaar and now face potentially a, a natural disaster um, in the making. And so in a in a country that's already um, right impoverished, impoverished and yeah. dealing with their with their own communities issues. And I know that I read also uh, some of the Bangladesh government officials are getting antsy and they want Myanmar um, and their leaders to come up with something to get folks Back, do you think that that pressure from the Bangladesh government will help move uh, State Councilor Aung State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi to you a decision? Know, um, we certainly hope so. I mean, it's not just the the Bangladeshi government. On the one hand, the Bangladeshi government needs to, you know, has been trying to maintain relationship with Myanmar government because it has, um, you know, a million of its uh, uh, people. Um, but uh, it's, you know. It's really a question of the international community to create a repatriation, a return of these Rohingya that is, um, you know, safe, voluntary, mm-hmm. not forced, mm-hmm. um, uh, dignified, and sort of meets the international standards for mm-hmm. that form of repatriation. Mm-hmm. Um, what you saw in the last couple of weeks is the United Nations High Commissioner of Re- Refugees, um, UNHCR, mm-hmm. uh, United Nations uh, you know, Development Program, and the government of Bangladesh and government of Burma signed a memorandum of understanding, an MOU, uh, on repatriation. Problem is no one's seen it. Um, it's supposed to be really good, and supposed, you know, according to uh, the Myanmar government, and according to, uh, well, really the the Myanmar government's the one uh, touting it, um, and it, you know, it, it talks about safe, dignified, and voluntary repatriation. But I think one of the things we're concerned about is that if you don't have the apartheid system that's changed in Myanmar. Um, you, you don't have citizenship law reformed. Right. You don't have, you know, one of the things that we actually found in a recent report is that um, we use satellite imagery where we've shown that uh, the Myanmar military and security forces were building um, either police or military camps on top of burned Rohingya villages and re- former Rohingya homes as well. So how do you go back to... Right, where to, do you go back to? Right, where do you go back when to you, and how do you go back to where the same people that were killing your family, killing your family are, are now, now right parched up you. on right. your land where your home was? We heard, heard reports of the Myanmar military burning farmland 
or, um, you know, preventing them to get access to markets, right. um, which was not, you know, it's not the same thing as, as what you saw last year, but it's, it's a very slow form of, right. of death that it was still doing it for the, for the many Rohingyas that are still there. That are still there. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, Amnesty International is, is, is focused on human rights, but rest assured yeah. there are economic interests that um, we could spend a whole nother show uh, talking about, but there's, there are resources, natural resources in that area of, of Myanmar that outside stakeholders are interested in, and I'm sure the president or uh, the the uh, state, state counselor, counselor yeah. uh, state counselor, upon her, you know, being elected, I'm sure had visions, right, of not only just democratizing her country, but bringing them up on the world economic stage, and and that would require some level of of trade with other countries and building up your local economy, and so right. I'm sure there are, um, you know, some some economic push factors that are that aren't making this an easy situation and mm-hmm. as as well. You know, this problem's not going to go away. You don't just um, sign an MOU and, and right. hope that a million people go back to the place uh, where atrocities happen. Um, this is clearly a long-term issue. Mm-hmm. And I think w- sort of that relationship between the public host community mm-hmm. and the Rohingya is going to be an important factor of that, and mm-hmm. there are there are definitely resource issues um, into account there. And so the so the MOU is one we were talking about tools in the tool belt to try to fix this. So the MOU is one, and then here in the United States, um, there's some legislation as you alluded to. So talk about uh, well SB 2060 was introduced. Um, it's a bipartisan. Correct. Thank you. Thank you, Congress. Pass, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but it, it, it passed, and, and we had both Democrats and Republicans um, who said enough is enough. So tell us about this legislation and what you hope um, or what it's set out to accomplish. Two things, uh, framing points. One is that Congress has historically played uh, uh, a leadership role with respect to Myanmar policy. Um, back in the 90s, a young senator named Mitch McConnell um, was <laughs> a uh, uh, you know, sort of the leader of the State Department Foreign Operations Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, which sort of helped fund the State Department. And uh, it was just around the time that Aung San Suu Kyi was in prison mm-hmm. under the military junta, and there was massive backsliding and protests on the street. And so, you know, Senator McConnell led the way to impose the original sanctions on, um, you know, Myanmar, which um, you know, de- deprived it from the international you know, world, economic world, uh, for decades. Um, and so now we talk about, you know, what's the possibility for Myanmar, but people forget about, you know, not too long ago, Myanmar was was up there with North Korea, Iran, mm. in terms of being economically isolated from the entire world. And so fast, you know, so framing question, Congress has been a leader when it comes to human rights on Myanmar. Good, Second, Congress. Thank yeah, you. Um, well, we're hoping that they continue that. Yes. Um, and then second is just uh, in, in full discretion, I actually helped write a lot of this legislation. Yes, you did. Yes, you uh, did. When I was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, obviously on the behest of my boss, and uh, and he gets you know, <laughs> he gets all the credit. <laughs> Told y'all Francisco um, knew a couple of things. He <laughs> wasn't lying. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's it's extremely important that this bill um, becomes law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that it does is that it really uses um, all the tools 
um, to try to hold senior military officials accountable. So um, not only does it get us closer to international sanctions, it also um, tries to, um, like I said, uh, funds the State Department and creates reporting requirements so that they, um, you know, uh, collect evidence um, to figure out which atrocities happened, whether it's, you know, crimes against humanity or genocide, um, which would be important and sort of send a signal that the international community is serious about accountability and justice. Right. And a moment of foreign policy here. Yeah. So it's really interesting, um, you know, you say this because I don't think people really understand the weight of America's word. Right. When we say something is genocide. Right. That is like the holy grail of accusations. Like if Absolutely. it's if the, if America say y'all and did something, that means it was bad. Absolutely. And 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 the rest of the international community typically follows the United States. Now what will happen now, I don't know. But right. but typically that's been the trend. So the idea is in a way like we're we're America is leading the way on gathering the evidence mm-hmm. to potentially hold you know, the, the perpetrators accountable. And, and if we should come out that um, this was, in fact, genocide, according to whatever definition, evidence, whatever, then then it's grounds for some real um, yeah. some, stuff some going down. Yeah. Mechanism. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the legislation has some good language about um, human rights conditions on any future security assistance, um, has some good language about Human rights conditions for um, you know gemstone trade, what's, uh, which what's, what's, um, it's an important force uh, source of revenue for the Myanmar military. Gemstones, yeah, like um, the stuff that's like in our rings. Correct, um, and so you know, yeah. jade and gemstone is actually really uh, a huge market um, in Myanmar. Mm. So. The legislation is, is, is really, you know, it, it's, it's titled the Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act. And it is, um, you know, in, in my opinion, but obviously I'm biased, <laughs> uh, a, a, a fantastic piece of human rights legislation. Um, <laughs> so which the best of the whole wide yeah, world, Francisco. <laughs> um, it, it got attached to the National Defense Authorization Bill. Uh, a couple weeks ago on the House of Representatives. Which is, um, so in case people haven't been following because we didn't do a show on it, but. Um, Which is the uh, annual defense, the Department of Defense legislation. Okay. And so um, it's considered one of the must-pass bills every year, and Republicans love to to, uh, pass it and, and, you know, obviously. It basically funds the Department of Defense. Defense. Correct. Um, and so oftentimes other foreign policy um, legislation gets attached to it on the floor. Um, and so it just so happened that with the leadership of um, Congressman Royce and Engel and uh, Shabit, who were the, the co-sponsors of the legislation, uh, particularly Congressman Engel and Shabit, um, it got attached to um, the National Defense Authorization Bill on the floor. Okay. It passed on the Senate side. It passed the Senate Foreign Relations Committee mm-hmm. earlier this year, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, Senator McConnell is blocking it from either getting it passing into the Senate floor through unanimous consent without a without needing a vote because it's so uncontroversial uh, theoretically, right? Mm-hmm. But he's blocking that, um, and he's also blocking it from being added to the National Defense Authorization Bill. Why? Uh, so. Senator McConnell, if we remember from the beginning of this story, has was has a very personal and, and uh, important relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi. 
And from what I understand is that uh, his views are that the the legislation goes too far Mm -hmm. in undermining the civilian government. And, you know, from the arguments that I've heard uh, from his office and and from, um, you know, my time at the Senate and and, and, in other conversations, he believes that, you know, Myanmar is a very fragile democracy Mm -hmm. and and basically this is is the wrong approach Mm -hmm. to a, a big problem. And, and optically, because you can't say it, but I can say it. Right. Um, optically, I mean, what would it look like putting a, a, a Nobel Peace Prize, Prize winner yeah, in jail or prison or whatever the international criminal but, court does and, to well, people? And it's, yeah. and it's fair to it's important to, to point out, though, that the legislation is crafted in such a way that um, it, it puts the onus on the Myanmar military. Which she who, has no control over. Which she has no control over. Mm. And so we actually... You know, in terms of from what I understand from U.S. government policy to be and and from what I understand, the drafters of the legislation um, (laughs) is that uh, the legislation tends to support the civilian government Mm -hmm. and not criminalize um, them. Yeah, not criminalize them, not not undermine their ability to govern or democracy or Mm -hmm. um, all of those things. And it it just, you know, there should be accountability, there should be a punitive action taken to the Myanmar military for what they've done. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, it, you know, it gives the civilian government more leverage because right. here you have the international community lambasting the Myanmar military for human rights abuses and, um, you know, the civilian government shouldn't be criticized for that. And, and so I think from an advocacy advocate perspective, I think the legislation is that right middle ground approach. Right. Um, but unfortunately, Senator McConnell has not uh, seen it that way yet? Right, right. Um, yeah, that's that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I can, you know, no, no, it's helpful. It, it's why we we do this show, and why I think it's important for America to hear, like just how complicated these these policies are and complicated um, these issues are. I mean, is, this is a new con- a, a newly elected Democratic leader. We want to support her and her work. We also want to give her sovereignty, right? We talked about sovereignty on our very first episode. That countries should have the, the they have the right to do what they what they they want. And so you want to give a country an opportunity to fix itself, but you also want to make sure you don't give um, permission. Uh, for other countries uh, or groups of people to disproportionately annihilate another group of people unchecked. Right. Right. And exactly. and that's a tough, a tough place to be in if you're uh, a country like like the United United States. So thank you for doing that and try to figure that out. I'm glad that's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, we're, you're now part of it. Boomy. Yeah. Oh, crap. If any, if any Ken- Kentucky uh, uh, viewers of this show uh, would like well, to call go. their senator, uh, their senior senator, yeah. um, you know, they know what to do. Yeah, which is exactly <laughs> what I was going to ask you as we round out here. You know, what can people do? This is always the tension with me as the host of this show is I right. hear all of these horrible things. And, and there's so much going on here in the United States and in my own life. And, you know, it's really hard to lend energy. Uh, and, and you sometimes feel like you can't do anything about like the story of Nuri, like breaks my heart. So what can you do? If you're listening to this show and you feel compelled, what can you do to help this situation? Absolutely. So one is, you know, call your representative, right? I mean, this legislation is making its way through Congress. It passed the House, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't get it, you know, attached to the National Defense Authorization Bill in the Senate, 
then we're going to have to find another way to go forward on the House as well. So call your senators, call your House of Representatives, tell them um, that you know their constituent supports the Myanmar legislation that's making its way through Congress, that they should be a co-sponsor for it, that they should be a leader, a champion for human rights issues in Myanmar. Um, and, you know, because really Congress should be accountable to the American uh, public, right? That's why we have a, um, you know, a, a congressional body. And so um, that's one thing. Um, second is just, you know, feel free. There, there are various ways to become an amnesty member and, and um we always run campaigns on whether it's to sign a petition and send a letter to the Myanmar military or we just had last month about press freedom in Myanmar mm-hmm. and calling for the release of two Reuters journalists. A case, uh, a topic for another mm. podcast episode, but um, clearly in a, you know tied to what's going on in the Rohingya crisis. And so, right, but but we had um, you know letters, uh, petitions to the Attorney General, right? And so get involved with Amnesty International. Mm-hmm. Um, find ways to really we are uh, our job is to empower our na- international movement um, regular people um, like your viewers to you know give them the tools to fight for human rights issues um, and social justice and I would say you know when you go to the amnesty and if you go to the amnesty international website they have great resources and great reports and so if you just want to get smart, on yeah. the issue, you know, I, I think Amnesty International is a trusted a trusted organization and they, they spell things out so you can understand <laughs> what's going on and it's not all, you know, you know, wonky terms. It, it's it's very clear. I used a lot of your work to um, catch up to speed for, for this show. So I want to encourage you if you just want to get smarter um, uh, on the things that uh, Francisco has been talking about, go to the Amnesty International website to, to read up. And you guys released a report today, actually. But there's some interesting um, findings that That's Amnesty true. International has discovered with outside a beer company, right. basically providing Japanese beer, Japanese company. beer yep. company providing <laughs> beer to the Myanmar military that's been, um, you know, executing these horrible atrocities against the Rohingya people. So check out that report. Um, right. We've been talking about a lot of sad things. Um, about, uh, but there are things you can do, right? But there are so. things you can do. You know, call your local representative, get smart about the issue. And, and, and keep re- raising the issue, right? Keep raising um, the issue. So. Keep talking about the issue exactly. as well. Um, no matter if you're in Southeast D.C., if you're on the South Side of Chicago, if you're in Kentucky, right. wherever you are, um, it, it matters uh, because these are human beings we're, we're talking about. So, Francisco, thank you so much. Coming back from your trip uh, <laughs> under the weather uh, and making it here to talk to us about this very, very uh, serious and important issue. And I mean, it must feel great. Uh, to have written, you, no matter where it goes, I mean, you, you've written something, you've actually done something. People say, you know, nothing happens on the Hill, but it's I'm not sitting. not law yet. It's not law <laughs> yet, but you've gotten a lot farther than, you know, uh, a lot of, th- of others who, who try to push things across the table and they don't even like come out of committee, right? So you've written something that's really going to change people's lives. And right. so um, I thank you for, for yeah. your, what you're doing. Well, I need the help. I need the help of all your viewers. Yes, and, yes. Um, Please you know, support Congress, Francisco, so. but more importantly, support... 
the Rohingya people and support general human rights uh, uh, around the world. I'm assuming if you're listening to this show, you value those things. So so uh, if you want to um, listen to other episodes of What in the World, you can go to whatintheworldpodcast.com. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google. Um, you can also listen to other shows similar to mine on uh, WERA.FM, uh, which is hosted by Arlington Independent Media here in Arlington, Virginia. Fantastic, fantastic uh, local community radio station. Uh, so, uh, Francisco, what we like to do on the show, because these issues can be very, very, very depressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you just came back from this trip. And so I'm sure right. mentally and physically you're trying to, you know, uh, just adjust to, to, to life <laughs> time um, zones too. time zones and <laughs> moods and and everything so we try to ask our guests to share a song that puts them in a good mood and tell us what your what your song is and 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 why you love it lynn manuel miranda um and ben platt um hey uh, had an amazing song um particularly one that played um during the march uh, for our lives, um, and um, I'm sure your viewers have heard it, um, but you know they're just um, such inspirational singers, right? Um, and when you think about uh, human rights issues, you think about foreign policy um, or just you know social change and, and social justice, um, you know the sort of the lines of you know. This is just the beginning of our story, even if we're not done. Uh, just it was just such an uplifting message mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that I listened to it like a million times while traveling <laughs> yeah. back and forth um, from Asia. Um, they just send a, a message of, of hope um, for activists everywhere. Yeah. Um, and you know, I remember thinking, you know, being on the streets of DC um, during that march, and basically, I mean, not only. Because you heard such impactful stories at, during that march, um, but then just a song that um, really tied it all together really brought me to tears. Yeah, in, in a good way. Yeah, in a hopeful way. In a hopeful way. Yeah. So. Well, um, I'm hopeful uh, because of folks like you, and and the song is found tonight again by Lin Manuel Miranda and Ben Platt, and you can um, enjoy this song. And I hope you feel empowered. And while you're listening, you pick up the phone and you call your elected officials and you tell them <laughs> to do something. You tell Mitch McConnell to to get his act together and and to to push this legislation through so that we can um, see justice um, be done and and, and uh, hopefully um, bring some peace to to that region of the world that's so desperate. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you all for listening to What in the World, and we will see you next time. To carry you when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. So let the sun come streaming in, because you'll reach up and you'll rise again. If you only look around, you will be found. And when our children tell their story, They'll tell the story of tonight No matter what they tell you Tomorrow there'll be more of us Telling the story of tonight The story of tonight